Hi, everybody. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit today about something that's really exciting to me. Um, here's a little backstory on it. When my old job went a little bit sideways, I decided to go back to school and take some classes, perhaps, um, you know, learn some new stuff, find out, um, find out where I was. Um, for a long time, regardless of my career success, I felt a lot of shame that I never finished college. And I, I'm a self-learner, so, you know, um, at that age, I was just not ready to, to keep going to classes. It just wasn't where I was at the time. And I always made plans on going back, and I never got around to it. And, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, I really found myself wanting to go back and learn again. And, you know, I started trying to challenge myself in a bunch of areas that maybe perhaps, you know, I, I had interests in but hadn't really applied myself and tried to develop my skills as either a uh, an artist or a um, engineer or, you know, one of the various things I do in my job. And which is my job is sort of like the conversion of art and engineering. It's a it's a fun and interesting place to be. And, uh, you know, I'd always <laughs> I'd always known I had good math skills, but I hated math. And and it was because nobody had ever really explained to me what it was for. It was just, here's a system of how to do stuff. And it seemed like a bunch of rote memorization, which I really pushed back very hard against. And um, <laughs> this was often a area of uh, deep discussion at the dinner table with my parents um, because I had tested very high in the like standardized test, but I really had a hard time getting above a C in a lot of math classes, except for geometry because it was all visual and I totally loved it. Um, see, this is when I started to realize, oh, when I like a subject, I will put everything I have into it. And if I don't understand it, you know, I, I'll shut off and I'll, you know, but, uh, so, you know, I was working at, uh, my old job and like I said, my career hadn't really, it, it, it had taken some weird turns and part of it was like, I was in a bunch of car accidents and my, um, I have a chronic pain condition, uh, mostly from, uh, my temporomandibular joint disorder. And, you know, it was just, it was a really bad time for me. You know, and I got demoted and, you know, that's always a hard thing to deal with. And, you know, a big thing for me has always been sort of like, you know, a fear of failure would push me to try to succeed, which ultimately you get to a point. I'm sorry. Ultimately, my wife says I should use more I statements and not you statements. And she is correct. Uh, I should be able to accept failure and, and, and be able to live with it. And I did learn how to do that a lot more. Um, 
actually, it's funny because my wife pointed out to me that failure is part of my process. And I think um, that's kind of one of the best things anyone's ever told me because that is where I do most of my learning is in my failures. Um, I, I have a hard time listening to other people's advice. I always want to do things my own way. And uh, realizing that and then trying to incorporate that failure into it, I think is a really big deal. So one of the things that came out of all these classes was doing a podcast. And uh, the first two people... Well, let me just back up one tiny step. I had a couple full expression panic attacks. Those are the ones where you feel like you're dying. I ended up going to the ER. You know, it was a very not fun experience. And right before... Uh, this was right before I was getting ready to head home. And part of my plan was to do some interviews for this podcast. One of the first ones I did was Harrison Roper, my old music teacher and mentor for many things in life. And the other uh, interview I did that, that week was with my father uh, about his time in Vietnam. And I wanted to... I guess, I mean, in reality, why I chose Mr. Roper and my dad as my first two interview subjects was because I thought it was a it was a safe place that I could fail and that I could also just ask them whatever I wanted and they would always answer my questions. And that's the way it had always been since I was a kid. Um, and, you know, a lot of my learning, as much as I say, like, I'm like an autodidactic sort of learner. Uh, I was taught a lot uh, in the sort of master to apprentice way from these guys. And it was often very self-directed. I think this is why it was hard <laughs> for me to get along with some teachers as a kid because they sort of let me choose my direction and go where I wanted to go. So I just got out of the ER and I'm getting on the plane, which uh, for a while I used to have a very... Uh, big fear of flying and I remember looking out through the plane window and you know I was still feeling some of the effects of the anxiety um, from the panic attack and I looked through the window and I saw the woman that was controlling the the skyway and she looked and made eye contact with me through the window and she gave me the sweetest smile and there was something in that moment of human connection where I just had that feeling like everything's going to be all right. And I didn't know why I didn't know how, but I just knew it would. So flash forward to a few years later, because of this podcast in this interview with my dad and Mr. Roper, I decided to go to uh, take this class for writing. And I, Ended up um, getting into a, a writing program at Stanford, a two-year uh, writing program. And when I told my dad, um, he came out and dropped like four giant notebooks into my lap and was like, oh, this is from my first year back. And I opened it up and it was, it was all his poetry that he'd written. And this was... Um, 
this is right around the time where he had gotten an official diagnosis of PTSD from his time in Vietnam. And this journey back to Vietnam ultimately became the catalyst for my departure from my old job, which I'd been at for 12 years and it started off as a dream job and then became kind of a nightmare job that was a a loop of unhappiness and I just had to I had to pull myself out of it and going back to Vietnam with my father uh really opened my eyes to a lot of things and I'd always had a very cynical outlook on the world or just that there was no way for forgiveness to work in any of that and seeing the forgiveness that the Vietnamese people showed to my father forever changed my outlook on the world because just as much as it is hard to forgive it is hard to be forgiven and you have you have to punch through it and uh mentally and and be able to accept forgiveness and then also to be able to forgive and that is that is what we got to do in this world to survive my opinion um and so then i start my new job and i'm like so excited and then day 3 i get a call from my mom who is very upset on the phone and my dad has had a major hemorrhagic stroke uh i went home and you know i the moment i grew up was the moment i had to feed my dad like a baby i mean the stroke had so um messed him up i mean he had to he needed help eating like he couldn't do anything uh he has aphasia which is loss of language and it's really hard because i realized who who made me love words and playing with words because uh, i i figured out like abstraction you know abstraction of words and ideas is the same as abstraction of math and numbers and um my dad was, you know, he had both the language and the math skills. I always thought, you know, I was more language skilled than math, but it's a weird, I don't know. It doesn't really matter. The point is I've, I've been holding on to this interview with him, uh, forever because I mean, it's from 2010. It was going to be part of another podcast and after his stroke and I mean, to hear him talk and and say, you know, who who he was was really hard for me. And so, but now I'm ready I'm ready to share it with the world. And uh you know, my dad's a different guy now and I still love him. But I really miss the old one too. Oh, and uh, I got a little sidetracked there in my um, improv monologue. I'm trying to learn how to just speak without any notes or editing. And the the, the exciting news is uh, I am getting some of Dad's poetry published. And it's coming out in September. And 
I'm very excited. I his poetry is really good, and um, it's hard to read. It's from coming back, and you know, it's his first year back, and he was really affected by what he saw there. And it, um, he he is a very sweet man that did not shouldn't have been in a place that full of such violence and awful things. So anyway, this is my dad, everybody. Say your name. Paul McFadden. All right. That's a decent level. <clears throat> All right. So, um, tell me about the day you got your draft notice. It was just a big, thick envelope. I got it somewhere, but I thought while we were going through the attic, we might find some of that stuff, because I'm looking for my original DD-214. What's a DD-214? Well, that's your discharge paper. Well, I guess. You know, it's not, not like you're, you know, when you get your slip that says you're out of the military, but I guess it's your end of active service or something. They just said, keep this. It's really important. Right. <laughs> so. Well, what were, what were you thinking when you, I mean, did you know what it was before you opened it? Oh, yeah. Because it says it's from the U.S. Selective Service. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's about, you know, three-eighths of an inch thick. So, I knew it was coming. Um, well, what was the, what were you thinking as you got that or well how did why did you know it was coming well because they had a lottery in december my number came up eight. Oh, okay <laughs> and how much time was there between then and the day you got the notice well the lottery was in early december maybe even been december 1st uh and the draft notice came first week of july six or seven why I remember that is because I was supposed to, I actually attempted or made a gesture to enlist in the Air Force after my um, lottery number came up eight. So I went and took the test and took the physical and I got accepted to go into pilot training and uh, I was supposed to report to Lackland Air Force Base on either the same day or the day after that the draft notice came. That's how I remember that. Mm-hmm. So it was three weeks from the time we got the draft notice, and I was actually in the Army. So at that point, were you, I mean, was it something that you were hesitant about, excited about? Did you dread it? Well, you know, it's kind of like, I don't like the fact that I'm just getting yanked around and told what to do, but mm-hmm. what, what could you do? Well, the Canadian borders only. Yeah, I looked at that. Really? I was home on leave for, when was it? Maybe it was before I left. I just drove up to the border and just turned around and looked at it. Hmm. Oh, seriously, <laughs> did you think about it? Not to. Yeah. Too chicken. What would I do there? You know, you, you know if you had a, a ton of dough that you could start off with, or you were adventurous, then... 
So, anyway. So then you did basic training. Yep. Where? Fort Dix. Fort Dix, New Jersey. We rode on the bus. <coughs> well, we went in, went to Bangor, and that's where they actually in, inducted us. We got on the bus here. I think there were 33 people on the bus going into the military, and 32 of them had been drafted. And they were all from northern Maine. No, and did any of these guys end up in any sort of same unit as you, or did they separate you as soon as you get to training? Um, there were a couple of people that ended up in the basic training unit for the, whatever the basic training is, July, I don't say August, September, two months, whatever it was. There were, there were some of them that were in the same basic training unit, but the basic training unit was like a dorm. And it had like three stories, and each of the stories had, I'm thinking, two ends. And so there were like six separate units in there. The only people that I actually knew were the ones in the same unit as me. Mm -hmm. So. And how long did that last? Well, so I went into the, went in on the July twenty third. That's the day we get sworn in. I think it's the next day we finish the physical here in Bangor. Then got on the bus and went to New Jersey. And I just remember riding through New Jersey and it was really hot. And you could see the, the oil wells or oil processing plants, whatever, with the flames shooting out of the tops and the windows of the bus are down. It stunk. So, I mean, we probably landed in New Jersey the next day and it was probably within a matter of a day or two that we were actually in training. And let's see, then it was late September that I was transferred to Fort Holabird to go to AIT. AIT is? Advanced Individual Training. And how many, <laughs> how many, uh, how many people from your first round of training get sent to that? There weren't, I don't know if there were any that came from my uh, basic training unit to that, I don't recall. Because most of the people that were in this uh, intelligence analyst AIT were um, regular army people that had signed up for that school in particular. I don't know if there was, may have been one or two other people I knew that were draftees, everybody else was either regular army, Marines that you know, we're in the process of building their career by taking this particular school. Mm -hmm. These weren't Marines right out of basic training. These are Marines that have been in two, three, four, five, ten years. You know, How many of them were college graduates? I have no idea. Of the Marines, you mean? Or the whole well, of the guys that were being sent to this. Well, it seems strange that they would send a draftee to this for something that seems like more of a career builder for a career military people. Now, the only reason I think that I went there was because my IQ test showed what my IQ test showed. Uh-huh. So, <clears throat> I think that's the reason. Did they ever try to convince you to stay in? 
No, no. As a matter of fact, I heard a rumor. I don't know if it was true or not that I actually, while I was in Vietnam, the um, I became eligible to go on to the next uh, rank, but they decided at central or at central office at HQ that. I didn't have enough military strack, so they never even bothered telling telling me when it was. Military what? <laughs> strack. What does that mean? Oh, you know, the uniform just right and oh, keep your okay. hair trimmed and yes sir, no sir. And, but of course, they didn't see much of me anyway. But because the the battalion was in Da Nang, and we were in a detachment, which was I don't know how many miles kilometers away it was, but you had to go over the High Vaughan Pass. High Vaughan Pass is one of, I think there are three perpendicular mountain ranges that run to the sea, so it chops Vietnam into three or four sections. And the High Vaughan Pass happened to be the one just north of Da Nang. So then from this secondary training that you departed from there to Vietnam? Well, that training ended on Thanksgiving Day. I remember they had a graduation <laughs> where they made you walk across the stage. And even that, somebody said, what the hell's the matter with you, my friend? You don't even walk right. <laughs> so they just kind of bounded across. Give me that. Let me out of here. Mm-hmm. That was, um, seems to me it was Thanksgiving or the next day or something right around here. Yeah. And I came back um, to Maine for a 30-day leave and so then the first first week of January so basically you were in the army for six months before you even got deployed overseas yeah yeah I mean went through basic training AIT had a 30 day leave and it was off to rice paddy you how well did you get along with your superior officers in training well they were mostly uh, non-commissioned officers, you know, sergeants, those guys. And they, you know, if you didn't bother them, you know, or did what, basically what you were told, they had so many other people that were just total jerks that they had to deal with that they just left you alone. Right. So. Um, like, what was your attitude towards the military at this point before being deployed? Before being deployed or before ever be even being in the military? Well, let's start with before being in the military. Well, I didn't know very much about it except from what people told me. Because I you know, went off to college and the only time I was ever back here was the first summer I was in college. First or second. Yeah, I guess I was back here after my freshman and after my sophomore year. But I worked on the highway down. Smyrna down where we were earlier today and it was just by that time there weren't very many people I knew that were in the military would you say it was overall positive overall negative neutral for the military itself yeah. uh, neutral what was your thoughts on the actual war in Vietnam I really didn't know an awful lot about it you know, those going to college didn't really. We never had any marches on campus or anything like that. Mm. 
Or what was, like, the general, like, idea about the Cold War in general? Well, most of the people there, you know, supported the Cold War as, you know, that's the way life is, that you have to, you know, prepare against them horrible Russians, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you don't want those Russian hordes overwhelming the United States. Uh, this is a bit of a sidetrack question, but I'm just thinking of it now. Uh, so, you know, the whole time of the Cold War, you know, up until, you know, 1990 when the Berlin Wall falls, you know, my general impressions of growing up in this house were, you know, I was sort of taught that the whole thing was ridiculous, you know, oh, yeah. the Russians are nothing to fear. Mm-hmm. And then the Cold War ends, and that's supposed to usher in this thing of peace, but now we've been at war more than we were in the Cold War. Yep. As far as the amount of time spent. So do you think the Cold War was better than what we have now, or worse? Well, it was a lot better. Yeah. You know, in terms of world stability, I think. Mm-hmm. I mean, there, you know, there really wasn't any um, threat from the Russians after oh, probably the late 50s. Well, 63, right? Yeah, but I mean, that was, they were sending missiles to Cuba. They didn't have missiles that they were going to be able to, you know, shoot to the United States. Or they weren't going to invade us. They're still struggling to get over World War II, really. But their, their, their potential as an enemy was exaggerated by the CIA and the intelligence operations just to probably... Make their existence more viable. Right. But then you had people like McNamara who, you know, absolutely believed that, you know, the Vietnam thing was right until he finally said, no, it wasn't. (laughs) So. How much of that do you think was embarrassment about, like, how long do you think he knew he was wrong before he would admit it publicly? Oh, Decades. Do you think he knew it was wrong while it was going on? No. Yeah. Why? I just think he believed that. I mean, it was like like the TV show Madman, you know, how everybody extrudes this confidence, and I'm sure that's exactly where he was at. And of course, he was out of it by, you know, the time that uh, we left and Saigon fell and all that stuff. He was long gone from the, the scene then. But, I mean, he was listening to what Wastemoreland was telling him, you know, need more troops, need more troops. And Johnson finally said, wait a minute, you know. So is that more of a failing of the military itself or the presidency not stopping it sooner? Well, what Kennedy would have done, I think, is up in the air. I mean, there's just so many conflicting records. But LBJ... um, struggled with what he felt I believe was that they were pursuing the wrong strategy you know maybe not at first but eventually so but he didn't rule he did he you know he was out of office after 68 68 was Tet which was you know basically the the enemy almost took over the whole country <laughs> right while there was this 300,000 or 400,000 American troops in the ground there. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Alright, so jumping back to... Uh, Alright, so after you finished with training, you had your 30-day... So then you flew out of... Well, we went back to Fort Dix. Okay. And I think that was on July... June... January 7th. And I got on the bus in Portland and got down there and... Maybe July 7th was the day we left country. Maybe it was like July 1st or 2nd, that, or January 1st or 2nd we left, uh, or I left uh, Portland. So we were there for like a week or something. Maybe not quite a week. But it was always like, you know, you guys have to stay in this know, barracks. You can't go anywhere because they may call you up immediately. You know, until a couple of guys said, screw this, and went down and found a little little PX or something came back with several cases of beer, you know, but they didn't want you doing that. But, uh, that's when we do stuff like, there was this, there was, there was one guy, one or two guys, three guys, I think, that I actually ran into at Fort Dix after, that were at AIT with me. Because there was this one guy that I was at AIT with who was, uh, um, draftee guy and his wife sent him a letter every day and told him how many more days he had left in the military <laughs> um, and he was just like this total frump you know that as much as he would try he'd always have one tail of his shirt out you know and one collar up and uh, so we were going to uh, elect him soldier of the month <laughs> till <laughs> The one of the lieutenants caught wind of it, and, but that, anyway, ran into him, and uh, what we would do is we'd go and there's a PX. And we, you know, we didn't have anybody. Nothing. You know. So they didn't pay you yet. Well, I, I can't remember. What it was twenty five bucks a month or some such foolishness? You know, it was just like. I think I got I got a payment when I left um, AIT because I had to use that to fly back. Anyway, what did you want to go and do? You know, you're on this base that's basically a transit area, mm -hmm. so they don't have much there. So we go over to the PX, and a lot of times to get into anything in the military had to stand in line wait so what we do is we get up to like the communism <laughs> <laughs> so we get, get up to the to the, the door you know of course it was cold outside so there was like a glass entryway and you come in through one set of doors and there's a second set of doors so we just stand there in front of the door and then you know, within a few minutes, more people would start lining up behind us. And then more people. And we got to the point where the outside doors were open, we were getting cold, and we just left. But all these people were just standing, waiting to get in, when there was absolutely no reason they just couldn't walk through the door. Wow. Well, there's a line, you just get in the back of it. Right. But they didn't notice there wasn't anybody inside the door and said, okay, next five, you know. So, he was... I was thinking up stuff like that. 
So we were there. I'm just saying. It was after January 1st that I left, and it was the 7th, I think, that I actually got out. Mm-hmm. Eighth or ninth, whatever. How did you feel about, you know, actually getting to the day that you were going overseas? Well, um, it was kind of like, let's get this over with, you know. Because it was cold and boring in New Jersey, so. Let's see what this is all about, kind of thing, you know. What did most, uh, what was like the mood of the other people you were traveling with? I didn't pay attention to that. Were you worried at all? No. Why do you think that is? Too stupid. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, it's going to be an adventure. Well, I don't know. I'm not really excited about doing this, but. Then kind of on one hand, yeah, I kind of am to see what it's all about, but. So, after you got, so you get there in January. Uh, what were your first impressions of arriving there? Hot and smelly. <laughs> well, first thing happened is, on the, when we were getting off the plane, you know, we were at this, I guess it would be probably just like any third world terminal kind of thing. There was just nothing like there is today. You walk off the plane, you walk across the tarmac, and you walk into a stucco building. And all they said was, if there's any incoming, just keep walking. <laughs> and it's like, what? <laughs> you say incoming? You know? But then what was weird about it, they had stewardesses on these flights that were like those you know, the little hats and little uniform things, and they're standing there in the tarmac directing people. So if there's any incoming, just keep walking. Okay. This isn't disconnected anyhow. Were the people that were used to it and being there, and did they have sort of, was that just sort of, it becomes such a way of life they didn't even think about it? or What? Did just part- like, yeah, just being like, if there's any incoming, just keep moving, whatever. Well, most of the people, I don't know what percentage of the people on the plane were going back. For another, yeah. another tour. It's not like today where people go back three, four, or five times. The ones that go back, uh, most probably once, maybe twice. You know, people that want to be lifers would do do more. But so I don't know. What did uh, What did you think being a soldier meant before you started your tour? I really thought much about it, I guess. You mean like duty to the country and all that kind of stuff? Just what was it going to be like? Or did you even have it? Did you think about it at all? No. What do you think of being a soldier is about now? Well, it's about being stupid. <laughs> if you can figure out a way to get out of it, get out of it. But then again, there's no draft now. So, I mean... Yeah. Uh, so. so I figure people that want to be soldiers, and I think part of it is today is especially um, economic. People that are going into the military need money. Yeah. That's one way to get it and get trained. And you know, if you're lucky enough to come back, we do. I think there's a fair amount of people that just want to blow shit up. Well, there are those too. 
And they're accepting a lot more of those than they used to. It used to be that if you had any kind of serious problems, they wouldn't take you in. You know, mm -hmm. Even minor, um, or one guy who had, well, you know where Thompson's Oil is, out there, it used to be Thompson's Oil, Jimmy Thompson ran the place. Um, he's a little younger than I am, but he had a brother that was in my class. And he, <clears throat> I don't know what kind of scrapes he had with the law, but I mean, it wasn't anything where he would have been probably thrown in jail, going to plead a couple things down, but it wasn't like burglary, it was probably motor vehicle type stuff. And he tried to get into the military and they, they made it conditional on something, but now they take thugs and a lot of gang members, I think, get, get into it to get trained in that stuff. What did, uh, what is your most vivid memory hmm. of your experience there? Well, the one that I was thinking about, because this applying for this PTSD stuff, they sent like an eight-page questionnaire about all the stuff that, or, you know, what incident causes you to, you know. And like I told the guys that's been trying to get me to do this, that, you know, I really can't pinpoint one separate moment, but it was kind of like a whole, the accumulation of the experience. Mm-hmm. So... I mean, do you have any memories where, like, when you think about it, you still, like, smell the smells that were there then, or, like... Well, I can imagine Yeah. that I go... I don't know if I can actually smell them. I, I think it's... But you get my idea, like, with yeah. that, like, that sort of memory where you, yeah. like, when you think about it, you, like... Or, like, time slows down when you think about it. Yeah. Or you, you remember more than... Or, like, the perception of that memory is hyper-realistic. You mean hyper-realistic? Like, when you... Like, everything seems exaggerated. Well, I think part of the reason that the memory is exa it seems exaggerated is because the whole... The, the, one of the things I'm thinking of is we went to... Um, we f flew in a helicopter out to a village that was flooded because there had been a typhoon, monsoon, typhoon, what they have there. One of the, I got films of it anyway. And they flew us out because what we did is we, <clears throat> we had speaker equipment, loudspeaker equipment. They flew us out and it was so far or it was so flooded that you couldn't see land after we landed in the village. It was just like water. And uh, Steve and I sat on a berm just a little berm, kind of about this high, that ran around the hooches. What's a berm? It's just a little pile of dirt, you know, it was just okay. like... And, and there was a woman, an old woman, inside a hooch that was probably, oh, from here to the quilting machine away, you know. And it's she, like 10 feet from you. Yeah, 10, 8, you know, it was, it was like... I just don't remember the, the space. I mean, yeah. it was just like a little path and the berms on the side of it. And she was just wailing, you know. It seemed to me the whole time we were there, but it may not have been. But we sat there on the berm and just 
just wailed and wailed and wailed. And what happened was her husband, who was 70 years old, had drowned the day before in the thing, the typhoon. The whole village was just, just that part of it that we were sitting in was one of the few places where there wasn't water everywhere. And we went through one of the interpreters, I can't remember which one it was. So we had four, four different interpreters that usually went with us. All at one time? No, there'd oh. just be one. Like Steve and I never usually went on missions together. I was usually with Sergeant Mack, but he had left and. June maybe I can't remember July so what were your uh, if you uh, if you tap the toothpick it's going to totally sound way louder on that oh just so you know okay um sorry to be a pain um well the other part of that story about the village was one of the interpreters came over a little while later I mean the whole village couldn't have been any bigger than from out here up to the congregational church. You know? Okay. That's, it's pretty small. And uh, he found a girl who, and she had a stucco hooch, and the roof was gone, you know, just that had blown off. And uh, there was at least a foot of water in, in the house itself. And she had an infant, and they were actually living on top of their kitchen table. Yeah. Because of the water. And uh, her husband had been involved in Lamps on 719, which was a big operation that the military and the army pushed the Arvins to have a big a counteroffensive with the uh, Viet Cong or Viet, yeah, Viet Cong, North Vietnamese. I'm not sure which it was. Probably North Vietnamese. Yeah. And uh, it was a battle that took place, I think, in Quang Tri province, near the border. I don't know. Anyway. And uh, he had gotten both his legs blown off. And he was in, in the hospital in Da Nang. And for this girl living in this village, her husband being in the hospital at Da Nang, he might as well have been on the moon. So, Steve, when we got back to base, Steve went up and talked to the people at the front office kind of thing. I think I was only there once or twice. And said, hey, look, you know, can we get some materials, go back and build this girl's roof? You know, I mean, the stuff's just sitting around here. You know, and they just said, no. <laughs> so, yeah. so, I mean, it's like, How sad. Especially when, let's see, I went on R&R on Thanksgiving. They sent me off to Australia. This would have been 10 months into your tour? Yep. Okay. So that, just to clarify, so that's like November of 71? Yep. Okay. Yep. But I went on R&R &R in, in November, or on Thanksgiving Day, I think it was actually on the plane, and uh, I came back 
December 2nd or 3rd or something like that. And the base that we were on, which was around the size of Holton, like 6,000 people, closed. <laughs> Just gone. gone. So where did they send you? Um, I, well, I got back in Da Nang, and I was there for probably a week, and then they sent me down to Tonsonute Air Base. I answered the telephone for a lieutenant colonel. That's all I did. How long did that go on? I'm thinking I got down there probably... Well, I was there before New Year's. can't remember if I was there for Christmas or not. So... It was probably two or three weeks. Maybe that I was still in Da Nang. Because I think they sent me right directly from Da Nang to this place. I don't think I went to a processing center. Mm -hmm. So they had already figured out where they were going to send me. Because I had extended so that when I came back, I'd have less than five months <clears throat> in the service. Because if you uh, had less than five months when you came back to the United States, I think they just let you out. So I had to stay until at least fe late February. Because say, February through July would have been the five. Yeah. But then they came along probably, I don't know how many days I knew. They just said, well, you're going to get out a month early. <laughs> so. But they told me too late in the day to get to this one particular place to start getting processed out. So I had to wait another day. Just remember that. Yeah. Because you have to go through all these places. Where I'm leaving, you know, they check you off. And you got your shoes, you got your, you know. So I know you previously told me, uh, so tell me the story about uh, almost losing your gun. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, this is the first time we ever rode in a helicopter. We were going off to, we stayed on, uh, the first assignment that I went on was to go to um, Coastal Group 13. And if you look at a map, I don't think I got one here, but if you look at a map, there's this long peninsula that comes way down, almost from way all the way down to the High Vaughn Pass. So on that end of that peninsula you could see the high bond pass where it came through and there was the coastal group there which was basically two navy guys and the uh, Vietnamese navy was there you ever seen the pictures of the no <laughs> I didn't know Vietnam had a navy <laughs> the uh, they're fishing boats you know kind of big fishing boats and they'd paint teeth on the front of them. I got... Like shark teeth? Yeah. Okay. I mean, they were big enough that you lay on the deck and sleep. You know, so that's what we did there is we'd take our little speakers and sp speakers, there were speakers that would be mounted on a helicopter. I think there were 12 cones so the thing was like this wide and this high. And we'd go up onto the the bay, because from the end of the peninsula to this next mountain right across the bay, wasn't all that far. 
because I know the it was the day I got the Dear John letter that I got so drunk that they locked me out of the hooch. Yeah. So I woke up in the middle of the night and there was just a, it looked like tracer bullet sand pans going both ways because you know they had little lights on it was a stream going out and a stream coming back so what dear John letter are you referring to I get a dear John letter when I was there because I'd been going out with this girl in college for know, three or four years we got engaged then unengaged and then we kind of hooked up again right after I got in the army So, when I got overseas, she sent me a letter and said, Oh, I'm getting married. <laughs> All right. I said, Oh, okay. They were just carrying supplies back and forth from the little village over to this mountain. And supposedly there was, uh, you know, all kinds of enemy up on this mountain. And they actually had a... Um, helicopter gunship come down one day and just shoot up an area, you know, as they sent us down the tape. They said, you know, if you don't give up and surrender, I don't know what the tape said. If you don't give up, surrender, and turn in your weapons, da-da-da-da-da, we're going to send down helicopter gunships, they're going to blow the whole top of this mountain right off. And then, like, three weeks later, one lone helicopter came down and shot the place up for about five minutes and left. <laughs> Oh, what a hoot. But they threatened to drop, I'd forgotten this, they were going to drop oil drum fireballs. I don't know how that worked. But. So then the only piece of intelligence that I ever discovered was uh, Steve and Gary and I were, actually we were on QL1 runs, <clears throat> over the Harbon Pass, and that's the road that goes up the coast. And this peninsula was out here, and we were in one of the little towns, little villages. There were three, four little villages right after you come down off the mountain mm -hmm. pass. And we were out there. One time we went out, and we had a box of toys. Yeah, it was like this big, that deep. It was just full of these little plastic toys, like little plastic soldiers and trucks. And, we were supposedly give those out to kids, and then the parents would give up this intelligence. <laughs> Good thinking. One day I sat on the back of the truck, and everybody would run off to do something, and the little kids would come up, and they'd stick their hand in the box, and they'd start taking stuff. And I didn't say anything. But by the time that everybody else got back, the box was empty. <laughs> He said, what happened to all the stuff? I said, oh, kids took it. <laughs> what the hell did I do? <clears throat> was it my day to protect the toys? Right. But there was, and one of the, Steve or Gary or somebody, it seems to me there was a lieutenant or something that was with us that day. They all came back all excited that they, somebody had told them that there were lots of enemy up in that mountain, you know, right across from the bay, from that coastal group 17. And uh, The same one they shot at? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so that was no new information. 
So they were that they were ran back to the the you know, I don't even know what it was, some kind of regional headquarters or something, and excitedly ran through the doors. There's all kinds of enemy on that mountain. You know, it's like yeah, we know. So. <laughs> We got sidetracked from your helicopter gun oh, story. That was on the way down to Coastal Group 17. Then. And, uh, I was sitting on the outside, and just sitting in a little, just like in, in mesh, and just in this little canvas seat with a seatbelt. Mm-hmm. You know, and the door was open. My rifle was under the seat. And the helicopter out and starts to bank like that, and the gun starts to slide out the door. That's what Sergeant Max said. You know, you lose that. They'll make you pay for it. <laughs> so, so you didn't carry your weapon the rest of the time you were there? Locked it in the locker. Never saw it again. Did Just people like, think you were strange for not carrying a gun in a war zone? Well, I was telling Pattengill about it last time I was up there for my physical. He just looked at me and says, You're lucky you didn't get shot. That's <laughs> like... Okay. <laughs> Do you think you're lucky you didn't get shot? Well, it's kind of like if if uh, if I got shot, it wouldn't be like there'd be a guy run out in front of me and go, "I'm gonna shoot you," you know. It would right. be just like be walking along and you could be totally bogged down with black jackets and right. firepower and rifles and. They shoot you in the head. Boom, you're dead. Is it fair to say that you thought what's gonna happen is gonna happen and? None of this other stuff is really going to make a difference. Yeah, I suppose. It's kind of like a, an attitude develops that, from what I've heard, and people, you know, I never really researched it or anything, said that usually the first month you're there, you're the most cautious in the last month. And in between, it's kind of like... Whatever. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that's pretty, that's pretty dead on. Yeah. But I also think there. I mean, so a lot of the stuff I've read has said, and this is actually this is more for guys that they're trained to be infantry and to actually be on the front line, uh, is that they say, you know, especially the guys that were doing like the first wave attackers in World War Two, you know, and then there's that first month where they're like, you know, this will never happen to me, and then they'll the first, they'll storm the beach the first time and it's not a big deal, then the second time it's like. Wow! I just watched a bunch of people die last time, and all my fr- half my friends are dead or injured. Like this, probably might happen, or like this might happen to me. And then by the third time, it's like this will definitely happen to me at some point if I keep doing this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, actually, I think it would be good for you to explain what what exactly what was your job. Well, we went around to villages and broadcast propaganda. It was known as the Chuhoi program, which meant open arms. And every time we'd drive by a group of kids and go, Chuhoi, Chuhoi, you know, they'd all laugh and point. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, you, know, you guys nuts. So. so we'd go out to a village and they gave us a script that uh, the interpreter would read or a tape and we'd stick it in a tape recorder and play it. And some of it was, um, you know, we encourage you to give up because you can get a half to a hectare of land someplace and you I don't know if they give the money to I think it was just a half hectare of land or something yeah and uh, rumor has it there was one guy that had accumulated 18 hectares 
<laughs> so it was kind of a joke kind of thing. You know, I don't know if that was true or not. But uh, Did anyone believe in the effectiveness of this program? I have my doubts. I mean, local villagers just kind of laugh and snicker, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, joy, mm, good thing. <laughs> what were your interactions with the locals like? Well, because we had interpreters, you know, we actually knew Vietnamese people, you know, because they'd come and hang out. I remember one time, little Ben, he wanted to brush his teeth, so he grabbed a tuba stuff to brush his teeth with, and he came back, and he was sitting on top of the footlocker, and he's going, fucking broker, number fucking ten. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So. So is that uh, how common was that for for like the average soldier to be social with with the locals? My guess, outside of the prostitutes, probably very low. Slim to none. Yeah. You know, they may have somebody that they talk to at the PX. You know, somebody that might mm-hmm. do laundry. You know, because a lot of People had, uh, well, they had uh, hooch maids, and they were people that could come on to the base and, you know, they'd clean their boots and make their beds, and, but we didn't have any of those. But a lot of units did, especially, I think, down in the southern part. I think they probably all did down there. And your group is basically almost like... Like, unattached to even, like, the base you lived on, right? Yeah. What happened, we just basically lived there. We lived, uh, it was, uh, um, the group was like a U-kind-of-shape area that we were in, uh, right across from the helipad and the donut dollies. And, um, What's a donut dolly? Oh, they were like Red Cross girls that would pass out donuts and gotcha. go out with you if you had high enough rank. <laughs> you know, that kind of stuff. Oh. Um, <clears throat> Did they appreciate being called donut dollies or was that? I think that was a hangover from World War Two kind of thing because they'd go and, you know, bring coffee and donuts. If, uh, like candy striper. Yeah. That sort of, of thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So, but they were in a pretty much locked up compound, so. Um, well, I think most of the people around us worked at the administrative part of, it was the 101st Airborne um, Detachment, something or other. I know it was right on the friggin' water thing, right by the showers, which was right in front of our hooch. So, but we just basically occupied a, a space on the base. What did the 101st Airborne guys think of your group? Very little interaction. None, practically. I mean, you know, we stuck by ourselves. We didn't... I don't think there was anybody in our hooch that actually went out to, you know, like little bars around on the base and stuff. We just pretty much stuck to ourselves. Of course, we stayed there from... Let's see. We got there... Let's say February. 
and I think by May we were living in an apartment in Way. The guy that was, uh, he's the lawyer now down in Calais. I think it was him. And Just so people know, like, that you weren't supposed to be living in an apartment off the base. No. <laughs> no. <laughs> uh, and when they found out about it, they took us to jail. Did they do anything else besides just making you sit in the clink overnight? or? No, and because we didn't really have, I think we had like nine different lieutenants in the period of time I was there. None of them. That's why Willie Paddock lasted the longest. Because there was one there when I got there, but when I came back from Coastal Group 13 a month later, he was already gone. And then um, they had another guy come in who wanted to be a, a captain, or he was a captain, and he wanted his um, combat infantry combat badge, whatever it's called, infantry combat badge. Yeah. So he used to go up in helicopters at night hoping that the helicopter would get shot at. Because if he, the helicopter was shot at, then he could get his combat infantry badge and make him easier to get his next grade up kind of thing. And there was another guy that, well, his father got sick and they sent him home. Yeah. But I, I can't even, I don't remember his name or anything. But uh, he was there a very short period of time. Then we had one that had been like an officer, not an officer, but a non-commissioned officer during the war in the 50s. <laughs> you know? And he actually told us that on the way up the High Bond Pass, there are several places where it does one of these things. And at the end of one of those, I think, back. almost at the top, was like looked like a, um, a manhole, you know, round culvert type thing. And... Uh, we were driving by that one day. So I went. I only went over that high long pass three, four times. And uh, he claimed that he actually manned that <laughs> that post for a while during the the war back in nineteen early part of the fifties. <laughs> that sounds like a pretty awful job. Oh man. But he was, uh, yeah, he was like. He was French, I guess. But he wanted to stand to stand. He just thought, you know, this is ridiculous. Because there were a lot of times he didn't do anything at all. Well, I mean, what what percentage of your time were you actually out doing missions compared to just sitting around on the base? Oh, let's say if we went out once a week, twice a week, that was it. That was, was that a lot? Or was that average? That, I'd say that was average. Okay. But, I mean, you know, first month I was there, I was gone for a whole month. And then I, we were on at least two different fire bases for a week. Well, there was one that was really a fire base. I think they sent a lot of wounded guys there. Yeah. Because it was really steep. And uh, these guys all had, you know, they dug into holes in the ground basically with sandbags over the top of them, kind of things. But. You couldn't, and it was like on a mountaintop. So it was kind of like a Boy Scout camp kind of thing, except they had lots of guns <laughs> and other stuff. But there was like a little path that went up. I can't remember how many people probably would have been on that. 
thirty or something like that, maybe. But they called them the walking wounded, so they'd been wounded or something happened to their discipline problems, and they just yep. stuck them on this fire base because you can't go anywhere. <laughs> so I mean, you'd walk by the hooches, it'd be just be big, huge clouds of pots about coming out, you know. They sent us up there. I think we were there for a week, and um, their plan was to send us because we had the speakers. Then they sent a pickup truck with a spotlight on the back, like as big as this. And they're going to shine that spotlight into the sky so that all the enemy soldiers in the valley would know where to shoot. <laughs> 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 I never thought of that. Um, this was supposed to be where, uh, you know, we were broadcasting come to the light, you know, come to the light. I mean, like poltergeist. <laughs> Then we'd play, um, well, they were trying to get the Jeep up there, and uh, it was so fogged in, you could hear the helicopter. Yeah. You could hear it. You knew it was really close, but you couldn't see it. And we were kind of up, there was like kind of a couple of different levels, and we were up here, and the helipad was down here. And in between was the command center where the all the radio antennas mm -hmm. and stuff. And that helicopter appeared. And he was like inches away from all the wiring, guide was, you know. So you see him pull back, but then he could figure out where the helo pad was, and he landed, actually landed the fucking truck, man. Yeah. Because it was so. What was so weird? So here comes the night, right? And we're they're broadcasting. Hey, come to the light, come to the light. And the fucking cloud cover is so thick, the light probably went up about that far. <laughs> <laughs> Honest to God, I don't know whatever happened to the truck. But uh, I just remember one night <clears throat> I was standing in a hole, in a hole that was this deep. And behind me was... Chin a, level. Yeah. And um, there was a culvert over the top of my head with a poncho attached to the back of it somehow. So and it was just pouring. So I'm playing this Buddhist funeral music at 12 o'clock at night. I broadcast from 12 to 1. Uh -huh. just pouring rain and there was this guard you know a little bit further down the hill and uh, he kept rolling these concussion grenades down the hill so every time one of those grenades would go off that poncho in the back of the <laughs> the culvert would just <laughs> my ears what was he letting up concussion grenades for? Well, if you were like 10 feet out and somebody broadcasting Buddhist funeral music at midnight in the pouring rain, <laughs> why not? Oh, this was a, a Vietnamese soldier? Or? Oh, I don't know who he was. Oh, I, I thought know. it was the one of your guys. <laughs> no, no. So he's basically it, telling you to shut up. Yeah, I mean, he's, <laughs> you know, you know he's... I mean, here's these guys, you know, probably most of them have been, at some point in time, been in some kind of combat someplace. And they didn't, certainly didn't want to back on the bases. And, uh... So was there an effort to keep guys that had spent a lot of time actually in jungle combat off the base? Well, yeah, they could cause trouble. 
you know, if you're kind of a wounded person that's pretty bitter about this whole thing and so they'd rather just leave you out on a fire base than actually put you in a place where you might be able to get a little more mentally right. Yeah. That's what it seemed to me. Yeah. Wow. I mean, there are people who could handle hospitals just fine and dandy, right? Yeah. But you can't stay in a hospital. They didn't really have wards that I was aware of that people could go to. So if you've got somebody who's got three months left in the military and rather than have them be around the base not doing anything, being a rabble-rousing, pot-smoking, you know, beer-drinking, let's cause trouble, stick them on a fire base for a couple, three months, and then, then you're done with them. Wow. The other, the other base, I remember, wasn't really a base at all. It was just the top of a hill. <clears throat> just like if you went out anywhere and went up on top of a hill just grass the other ones they'd all crisp flattened with uh, what was they called they were called daisy cutters they're 15,000 pound bombs and what they do is they just drop them on top of a mountain flatten it out then they could come in with bulldozers and do their whole thing but this was just the top of the hill we were there for a week we went out to broadcast same kind of thing and this all took place in relatively same area the two fire bases weren't very far apart. You could actually drive to them from the Camp Eagle where we, we lived. That's how they supplied them mostly. There's a big base out there called Bastogne. I'm sure that's probably, if you look at maps, of, probably the military maps, that would be identifiable. Because the one, base, one I was just telling you about, we could look actually right down on Bastogne. You see the tracers at night just going from one black spot to the next. Right. Or from the base to this black spot someplace. But who knows what they're shooting at. One time we were on coastal group 13. Um, of course, you're listening to the, on the radio to the uh, chatter. And these guys were supposedly to drop mortar, not mortar, but uh, artillery rounds. And they were given the coordinates, like, you know, it was two clicks, two clicks north and one click east, right? So they start, then you hear this, no, no, you idiot, two clicks east, not west. <laughs> hmm. So I'm sure, you know, they're blowing up some village someplace rather than, So what, uh, what advice would you give to... A soldier coming back from Afghanistan or Iraq right now. I don't know if I dare talk to him. <laughs> I think their their whole military experience would be a lot different than mine because we didn't have anybody blowing stuff up. Well, they were landmines and blew up stuff, but by the time that we get on the road, you know, they're always been buses. You know, they have a bus system. You know, it's kind of like one of the uh, the trucks that drive Holton Farms deer, the old kind that were open windows and people hanging off the sides and the tops. You've seen beautiful uh -huh. and that stuff. So there'd be trucks and there'd be smaller things. I'm not sure what they were called, but it'd be like a motor scooter in the front and like a cage in the back that four normal people, but <laughs> normal sized people would fit in, but there'd be people on top and 
so there'd been enough of that stuff gone over the, any of the roads that we would have gone on, so we didn't never really had to worry about that. Yeah. Or, or we just didn't. <laughs> Either way. I don't know. Is there anything else you want to tell me? Oh, I could go on for hours. Especially after I found out. I haven't had a chance to look at it, but what I did is I wrote down as much as I could. I think I got like 140 pages, 120 pages of narrative. And then after you were born, after we were married and you were born, I just knew I wasn't going to have any time to work on this stuff. Mm -hmm. If I remember correctly, I tried to do an outline of what happened for each month just so that it would trigger my memory of what happened. Okay. So. Well, the reason I ask is I have about 15 minutes left on this tape because I can't use that other one until I recover the file off it because if I start recording on it again, it might actually truly delete what yeah. I accidentally deleted. Yep. Uh, but also, I don't know... Uh, I mean, we could just do this again on another trip. Oh, yeah. But I didn't know if you had anything. Well, so I, you know, that's, uh, scrapes the surface, I suppose. I mean, we stayed in the apartment. We got busted there. What happened was one of the guys went over to, there was an actually what's called MACV, which was Military Assistance Unit in Vietnam, which was kind of like a whole separate army group from the U.S. Army. Yeah. And they were more like civilian type and did more of work like we did. And um, <clears throat> he went over there, went to, the, went to the bar or whatever, the club there, and he needed to go back, come back, because I mean, we lived right in the center of town, right behind the wall to Way, the ancient city. There was this moat there. There was a gate down the street, probably from here to the corner where nine Americans or six Americans died during the Tet Offensive. You know, they were shot right at that game. Or blown up, whatever happened to him. But the lady that owned the house was telling us about it. But he, he parked the truck out in front. But most of because he's only going to be there for a minute. Because most of the time, what we do is we back it in to the apartment underneath. It was just like a garage and closed, yeah. closed the gates. And we had the apartment upstairs. Who hatched the? How did you come up with this plan to move off the base? I don't know. That would mean there were. Was it just born out of boredom, or was it because well, the base sucked so bad? Well, I mean, you know, nobody cared. Why not live off the base? You know, the lieutenant he did did care. Maybe it was between lieutenants. It's it's very possible, but a lot of the guys, especially before I got there, had contact with a family in town, and they used to black market stuff. They used to go in and teach English to kids. Um, she was the black market. Her her husband was one of the national policemen in, in Ray. So he'd tell us stuff like, because some of the people used to go out into the villages at night and show movies, and, and that was pretty much stopped by the time I got there. But he would tell them, say, don't go to this village tonight. Don't go there. So he knew what was going to get attacked? He had a... An intelligent stream of some sort, you know. So, I mean, I don't think he was high up, monkey muck. He was just mm -hmm. street, maybe more, a little more than a street cop. 
And we pretty much felt, because uh, I mean, they stood down from 300,000 people to, uh, I think there were 180,000 when I left. That's why the whole base closed in, in like a weekend or a week or whatever. I mean, I had no inkling of it when I went away a week earlier, but of course then I wouldn't have any reason to. They came up over there. What happened was EMPs went by and saw the truck out front, so. I just remember. Were you not supposed to fraternize with the locals in general? Well, I don't know if there was any fraternization. But I mean, when they see that truck there, do they assume that you're actually living there, or do they see that truck and think like someone's goofing off? Uh, they see an American truck in a spot that's not supposed to be there. Because, yeah. I mean, you weren't supposed to be in town, you know. But I'm sure that, I mean, there were ways that you could get out, go out the back gate and go into town. Uh, what happened was that the main road, main bridge had been blown out, so all the trucks had to go across this railroad bridge. And it was the American truck drivers were constantly running over Vietnamese, you know. It got to the point that it was so hostile that you could not go through the city without an escort. So there'd be a guard post on the main road coming in, and they'd wait until they got, you know, ten trucks or jeeps or whatever, and they'd have people in front and people in back, you know. With us, we knew how to get into town and, you know, kind of go around the back streets. <laughs> I remember one time, especially after the uh, the MPs saw us, they were leading the escort, and the MPs spotted us down the side street. <laughs> they didn't come after us, but I'm sure that there was they were calling calling around. I don't know what the hell we did to get out of there. It's one of the MPs that was one of the, I don't know. He was a real gung-ho guy. And he actually shot the bugler. There was a bugler on the base. And that, that every time they put the flags down, this bugler you know, played whatever it is they play. And uh, he, this bugler wanted to go into way. And uh, he didn't want to wait for a convoy. This was the story that I heard. This, uh, this court, Corman guy just shot him. <laughs> he refused to wait. He, like dead shot? Or? Yeah, killed him. Of course, the bugler was black. And the MP was white. <laughs> but he was the one that busted us at the apartment. Wonder if I understand right. So... I think we were out in the back porch when they actually came into the house. And some of them went to the front room, because there was a front room and a middle room, and a kind of a hallway with a bathroom off the side of it, and then a deck on the back was just open. So I think some of the people have been kind of, you know, you, into this room, you know. Because we came out, and there's this black guy coming up over the stairs with a flak jacket and helmet. He's just, the eyes are about this big. He said, you got anything in here, you better get rid of it. So that's when I went out and threw Al's pipe. Because we had just a can, you know. Threw it into the moat. And he was all upset that I threw his pipe in the moat. <laughs> anyway. Then a little while later, later in the summer, 
into the fall. We lived in a gated, guarded compound. That was pretty slick. Did you get caught at that one? What happened was one of the guys was at some kind of function, was talking to uh, some lieutenant colonel or major or something, and was telling them about where we stayed and how nice it was and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and, and this fucking guy got all pissed off and got a hold of somebody because we lived in a better place than he did. <laughs> and we were ordered to move up. But no MPs that time. It was just, you know, our lieutenant was contacted by somebody else's who's... Yeah. And it came back down. He said, sorry, guys, you got to move on. So. But he, is, uh, he was actually the one that made the final arrangement for us to move in there. Yeah. Because the only reason we could stay was a guarded compound. So... I don't remember how long we were there. So in the spring, we were in the apartment. Then we were back in Camp Eagle. Then a little while in late summer into early fall, we were in another compound. I'm not here 